0: You're listening to the Crackpot Crones podcast with Terry Baum and Carolyn Myers.
1: Hello, I'm Carolyn Myers. And I am Terry Baum. And together we are. The crack crones. Crackpot Crones. Terry, first of all, I want to congratulate you on your wonderful new play in progress, Mikvah, which I attended the reading of on Zoom a couple of weeks ago, and it was great.
0: Thank you. I was very happy with it myself. Great to have the reading of the first draft. To have a first draft is a big deal.
1: It really is. And you had great actresses in the play it developed beautifully, and the audience afterwards, I know it was an invited audience of friends, but people were just so moved and thrilled by it. its It was really yeah. a delight. Yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, I felt like, wow, there's really something here. It's here already, you know? Yeah. You don't assume that you have that in the first draft.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Now it's improving it yeah. rather than, right. than having – a big hole in it or having to fix it in some way. But it it occurred to me um, that I've known you for many years and known you as a playwright for many years. And during the first couple of decades of you writing plays, is that right? Um, At least for a long time, you didn't write any plays about being Jewish at all. I mean, it didn't even come up in your work for the most part. Yeah. Until until you went to Holland. Mm -hmm. And when was that? I went to
0: Holland in 1985. I moved there. I was there on tour. And I I met a Dutch woman and fell in love and picked up and moved me and uh, my dog to Holland.
1: That's right. And I guess it wasn't a couple of decades then. It just so much happened during that time. It seemed like it must have been decades. Yeah. <laughs> it was one decade. One decade for sure. Right. <laughs> and out of that, out of that time in Holland, came Divide the Living Child, which was a very different kind of play than Mikvah, but definitely was exploring uh, Jewish themes.
0: Yes. Well, I yeah, I was never interested In particularly a Jewish standpoint, although I have always embraced being Jewish culturally, it's mattered to me more about the culture and the ethics than about the religion. I never could stomach God.
1: He's a real problem with all those (laughs) monotheistic religions. Exactly, exactly.
0: And then I went to Holland, and it was very important to other people that I was Jewish, much more so than in the United
1: States. Oh, I see it, yes.
0: It it didn't matter very much, but it did in Holland because of the trauma of the Holocaust. Also, Amsterdam's particular... Identity as a sanctuary for the Jews from the 1500s until the Nazis invaded. Yes. So the Dutch were traumatized by, all the Dutch were traumatized by what happened to the Jews in, during the Holocaust.
1: Well, you know, I think for many people, you know, Anne Frank, you know, being the, 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 That's right. you know, the main book that certainly that I read until knowing you, I think, I still believed that the Dutch were noble during the Holocaust. I didn't know until you told me. Well,
0: yeah, people see that the the in Anne Frank, they see that their Christian friends are supplying them with food and all that. And they they forget that a Dutch person turned them in. That's right. Um, That was also a Dutch person. Presumably the thief that broke into the um, house at some point discovered that they were there, and then when the thief was caught, later traded, uh, being released for revealing to them where some uh, Jews were being hidden. So Holland has the largest percentage of Jews murdered during the holocaust than any other country except Poland. Wow. And of course Poland had a very strong tradition of anti-semitism whereas even before the Nazis invaded there right, was a, right. you know there were pogroms yes. whereas Holland had been a sanctuary for the Jews for hundreds of years. So people had a feeling that they betrayed their own identity by not saving the Jews.
1: Yeah. And how do you feel about that? I mean, the Dutch feel that way, and you're saying that's what made them sensitive to your being Jewish and interested. Yeah. But but you also wrote a play where there's the Christian anti-Semitism really comes forth. That's what you're exploring.
0: I mean, I guess from going to the Jewish museum there, they used to have the Jewish Museum. They don't have it anymore. They had this book of Jewish walks in Amsterdam. And there were nine walks. And the first few walks had like 30 stops. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. So I saw both how Amsterdam culture was in some ways just incredibly impacted by the Jews before World War II, almost Amsterdam culture was Jewish. Oh, um, yeah. yeah, Amsterdam had an identity. It was Mokum, it was called Mokum. That is a, Yidd- a Yiddish word meaning the place. Oh, so that was the nickname of Amsterdam. Oh, Yiddish- I had
1: no idea.
0: The soccer team, their symbol was a star of David. Wow! Yeah. So, yeah, and continued to be after the war, in, in, including up until when I was there in the eight, you know, from eighty-five to ninety-five or ninety-four, and then there there was a big scandal when I was there because the Hague was the most conservative city, and so when the Amsterdam soccer team went to play the Hague soccer team. The Hague soccer fans would scream, kill the Jews, kill the Jews. Oh and boy. hold up banners saying, kill the Jews, and Hitler should have finished the job.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: Yes. And this had been going on for years and years, and the TV cameras had not shown it.
1: Oh, <laughs> been- so they were on the in crowd level. They're laughing it off as a sport insider joke, but in fact, the media is completely aware. Yeah, of how terrible is it is. Yeah.
0: and then at one point, a uh, one cameraman turned his camera, showing the banners saying "Kill the Jews," and there was a huge scandal about
1: it. Wow, interesting.
0: So, yeah. but Amsterdam had the identity as the Jewish city, Mokum. And even when I was there, there would be graffiti. Mokum lives on walls. So there was the concept that somehow Mokum still existed. But of course, 80% of the Jews were murdered. 80%. That's the same percentage as Poland. Oh my God. Yeah. 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 And there was a lot of different reasons. One of the things that is that Holland is incredibly flat. There's nowhere to go hide, geographically.
1: Oh, I you know, see. Yeah. In uh, in Sweden, they went up into the mountains. Yeah, and my friend uh, in in Italy too. People just went north into the yeah, Alps. That's they right. They just crossed the borders yeah. at the Alps. So anyhow, for various,
0: for many reasons, which were all completely fascinating to me, for me to put together, there was an enormous amount of guilt around the Holocaust. There was an enormous amount of history of the contributions of Jews to culture. It was all in these, in these walks in Amsterdam and all the places that were significant in terms of the Nazi occupation. And the Jewish Council. And I became very, very interested in the roots of the Holocaust, which I felt were much deeper and broader than German Nazism. Really, it was really about Christian anti Semitism. Right. In other words, at some point, somehow people embraced or turned their faces away from the Jews being taken away and murdered. There was something that helped them, all the Christians, accept this, if not embrace it. Of course, many, many supported it, too. And then I just became, oh, oh, well, why do the Christians hate us? (laughs) Yeah. And reading about that and really wanting to do a play about the Holocaust in Holland, because I saw enormous turmoil in people, people of my generation who were born after the war, right after the war. Right. Uh, so many people said to me, I've never talked about this before.
1: You really know you're getting somewhere when people say that to you. Yeah, It this- opens the conversation for possible change, I yeah. would think.
0: Yes, yes. I mean, they had been told and told and told in school that they were guilty, that they had failed. And yeah. they had internalized that. So not that easy to meet a Jew in Holland because of the high percentage of Jews that were killed. So I was the first person that they'd ever talked to about it.
1: The first the, Jewish person they
0: ever talked to. The first person. Oh, the first person. In other words, they just they didn't talk about it among themselves. My feeling is the whole continent needs group therapy. Yeah. I yeah. really think they need to get together with people who have experiences like themselves, who feel guilty, even the ones born after the war and talk about it. So I wanted to do my little bit. Of talking about it. And the first play I wrote was based on Iphigenia in uh, Aulis, Euripides' tragedy, where Agamemnon sacrifices his daughter to get a favorable wind to sail to Troy. And that was always my favorite Greek tragedy. It's like the most realistic Greek tragedy. There's no Real intervention by the gods, and it was very powerful about a father sacrificing his daughter for what he, he saw as political necessity. Right, um, and I wrote Iphigenia in Amsterdam, which was about the president. When the the Nazis invaded a city, they demanded that the Jews set up a council from their elders, the powerful men in their community that would mediate between the Nazis and the Jewish community. And so men volunteered to do this with the idea that they were protecting the community. But of course, they ended up doing the dirty work of the Nazis. They ended up doing the selection themselves, the Jewish council of who was sent away to the camps. They absolutely facilitated the deportation of the Jews, thinking that they were diminishing it or holding it back or whatever. So, I wrote a play about the Jewish Council, and I wanted to examine how men in that position feel that they're doing well, they're helping, and they're not, they're doing evil. But I discovered that when I had readings of the play, the people who came to the reading saw these men and what they did as being specifically Jewish. In other words, they thought I was saying that Jews were evil. I see.
1: Yes. Ooh. Uh,
0: Yeah. And so it is very easy. I mean, I'm talking about Jews saying they think they think the play is saying Jews were evil. So in other words, unfortunately, there is this idea about the Holocaust that any Jew who collaborates to save their lives is evil.
1: Yeah.
0: It's terrible. There's books, you know, about yeah. condemning Jews who collaborate to save their parents. So I, I didn't know what to do about this play. I had worked for, on it for five years, but wow. most of that was reading about the Holocaust. Yeah. It's a subject that you kind of... Help, I've fallen into the Holocaust and I can't get up. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. Every single story about the Holocaust is different. Yeah. Endless, endlessly horrible and fascinating and wonderful and different. Right. So everything is different from everything else. So anyhow, I didn't know what to do. So, So everybody said, you're writing this play in the Holocaust. You have to talk to this one woman. So this one woman, was. she was an actress. She was a child of Holocaust survivors. And uh, both her parents had come back from the camps. They were mentally broken as a result of that experience. And so she had to be the breadwinner of the family. And she started working as a prostitute when she was 13. Thirteen years after the Holocaust, there was a whole group of 13-year-old Jewish prostitutes in Holland, all of whom were girls who'd been born right after the war, and their parents could not deal with life, and they had to go out and support the uh, family. Wow. Anyhow, so she had become an actress, and she had done a, a very abstract play about the Holocaust. And it was very, very famous. She was a tiny, tiny person. And at the end, she got into a a suitcase and closed it up. Wow. On herself. And this was this extremely powerful moment. So I talked to her. I told her about my story about the Jewish council. And she said, no, nobody blames anything on the Jews until the Christians take responsibility for what they
1: did. Right. Oh, that's so moving. Because, you know, as the dominant religion of Christianity is often not even named. It's like they aren't Christians, they're Dutch, or yes. they're Nazis, Nazis or whatever they are. They're yes. not
0: Christians. They're Germans. Yes, right. Yeah. Yes. They're the Germans. And then the Jews. No, the German Jews are Germans too. And the, and the other Germans are Christians. Right. So, And in fact, the oppression was still going on because her mother had died, but her father was still in a mental hospital. So she tells me this story. This mental hospital is all Holocaust survivors, Jewish Holocaust survivors. And it's this dirty secret. It doesn't get any funding. The people don't get any drugs. They're all in straitjackets. It was just a horrible, bizarre story. And I didn't believe it really fully was true until several years later, somebody turned the camera around. Again, yes. Again. And there was this huge scandal in the news about this mental hospital for Jewish Holocaust survivors that had got no funding and everybody was in straitjackets. So her feeling was that Christians had never taken responsibility, you know, with all their guilt. And so she said, you know, the Christians have to take responsibility. And that turned me around. And I said, "Okay, the story is Christian anti-Semitism. The story is not the Jewish council. What is the story? And I went to a cafe and sat down. And in 20 minutes, I had the plot of the story. which was a Jewish woman and her teenage daughter are being hidden by a Christian woman who's trying to convert the daughter to Christianity. So that was the beginning of Divide the Living Child. All the Dutch, the Jews, the Christians, nobody wanted to hear anything about this play at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
1: Did you have a reading or anything while you were
0: still there? I never did. It was too, too toxic. It was too toxic for a Jew to say something negative about the Christians. There was a very famous Jewish dramaturg. When I showed it to her, she said, get this script out of the country. I don't want to ever see it here. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So it's like, oh, Okay, this probably is not going to happen in Holland. Yeah. <laughs> That's a pretty clear message. Yeah. Yeah. And my friend who was a gay man who's very active in Jewish life and all that, he said, we don't want this play here. So good. I brought it back to the United States. It still is is pretty controversial to really tell the story of Christian anti-Semitism. It's not an easy thing to do. It's only had one production, full production, at Ashland College in Ohio. But it was the centerpiece. It was the inspiration for a whole symposium on the Holocaust, which went on for 10 days.
1: Oh, that's great.
0: All the professors said, this is the greatest thing this college has ever done. And Elie Wiesel
1: came to speak. Oh, that's wonderful. I know I directed it in Ashland, our earlier version, the Ashland Shakespeare Festival put on a new plays festival, incorporating other people from the community too. And and your play was chosen. And it was definitely the most important and the centerpiece right. of that festival. It was the play that everybody went to and everybody was talking about.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was a wonderful experience for me. Yeah, it really was. And
1: your came.
0: <laughs> yeah words came and my parents, my parents were very ambivalent about my gay theater, my lesbian theater, but they were all behind my exploration of Jewish issues. So I was in conversation with somebody who was in charge of the festival and they said, well, why hasn't this play been done? You must submit it to other places. And I said, I have submitted it. And it's always been rejected. And whoever I was talking to, the theater person said, well, that's really weird. I don't understand why the script would be rejected. And my mother piped up and she said, you know why they reject it? Because they're afraid of it. Because it's the truth. Because it's too controversial and they're scared to tell the truth. (laughs) Wow. So great. Your mom backing you up. (laughs) Yeah, my mom. The one time in her life. (laughs) (laughs) It was worth working on this play for eight years.
1: (laughs) I think maybe now is going to be the time for Divide the Living Child to really take off. People have gone through quarantine and isolation. The situation in the play is very intense because the women are in the same room together, right. or at least the same small apartment together yeah. the whole time. That, I think that atmosphere is something that people will really relate to on that level.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. And, and we were saying it might actually work really well on zoom
1: it might
0: claustrophobic yes feeling of the play and the fact that everyone really is in their own box in the play everyone's situation cuts them off from everybody else yes the the daughter is cut off from her mother by having to go out of the world so i think it might do well on zoom so mm-hmm. I
1: want to get to Mikvah, your evolving major work. But before we go there, I just want to mention Hanukkah Butch. Because oh, there is one other play right. that you wrote. You wrote about being Jewish. That's and it's, right. it's a wonderful play. <laughs> How, and that you got invited to write, didn't you? And that was my only commission. I was
0: commissioned by the theater in San Jose, I think Central Theater, I can't remember, it was small theater, to write a lesbian Hanukkah play.
1: A short play, right? For a holiday show. Ten minutes. Ten Ten minutes, yeah.
0: Yeah, so I wrote a play where a Jewish woman brings her first lesbian lover home for Hanukkah, and the Jewish woman is very worried about how her parents are going to deal with, with this new aspect of her life and with this butch woman who is also Jewish, who is her girlfriend. But in fact, in the play, the girlfriend walks in and the parents have a Hanukkah bush. A Hanukkah bush is really a Christmas tree that Jewish people get because they want to have a Christmas tree. (laughs) It's usually flocked with silver or blue and they can't put all the cute, cool decorations on it. They have to put Jewish decorations on it. But this butch woman who's meeting this family for the first time, rather than them judging her, she judges them very harshly for having a Hanukkah bush. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. And then Terry rewrote this play so that we, the Crackpot Crones, could perform it as one of our holiday shows. And she changed the characters from young lovers to women in their sixties. That's
0: right. It was now Bubby and her bush. Booby
1: and her bush. Oh yeah, right. Now right. now only Booby is Jewish. Yes. <laughs>
0: yes. Only the new lesbian is Jewish.
1: Yes. And she's afraid she's afraid of what her granddaughter will do. That's right. <laughs> but we don't re- get that far. Yeah, no. We are. We're, we're stumped. While we're, The play only concerns them getting ready to go.
0: That's right. <laughs> yes. And Booby wanting her butch girlfriend to wear
1: dangly earrings. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so she won't appear so masculine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was one of my favorite pieces to do. It's
0: really yeah. a lot of fun.
1: And now we will talk about Mikvah, the new play. So tell me the story of the idea for Mikvah.
0: In terms of themes, the story begins in 1974 at the uh, Amazon Music Festival, where we were having this ecstatic time. And then these male bikers on their hogs tried to break in. And I experienced rage and a desire to kill them. And I realized I wanted to do a play on women's rage against men. You know, I'm not even sure I thought of it as the patriarchy. No, I
1: don't think so. Yeah.
0: I don't think we had conceptualized it. I mean, some people had, but I don't think I would conceptualized it as, as the patriarchy. Not yet. So I wanted to write that play about violence against women and women's rage against the patriarchy because of it. and. I also knew about the women's ritual bath. I went to a mikveh for my 50th birthday. That's how I celebrated.
1: A mikveh is the Jewish ritual bath.
0: Yeah, the concept is a woman is polluted by having her period and she cannot have sex during her period and X number of days after her period. And then she goes to the ritual bath and she is purified by that. And then she can have sex.
1: So in that in that regard, it's a very um, oppressive, patriarchal, disgusting yes. idea. But in it's, fact, there's a whole another feeling to it.
0: Well, in fact, the very first building that a Jewish community has to build before a synagogue is a bathhouse for women. So women get to take a bath once a month. Yes, yes. In the most primitive communities, women get to take a bath. So the experience of going to the mikvah, while it is based on the idea that women are defiled by their bodily functions, is actually very nice. So I went to the mikveh in my parents' neighborhood. My parents' neighborhood had become Orthodox Jewish. And so there was a mikveh that I had walked by on Pico Boulevard.
1: In Los Angeles.
0: Just a tiny little plaque on the wall saying mikvah, that's all. And I decided I was going to go there on my 50th birthday. So I had that experience of going to the mikveh, And it was kind of a wonderful experience. And then I also thought that a Jewish women's ritual bath was kind of an erotic environment. So as a Jewish lesbian, it was very attractive to me. And somehow it all came together, my play about women's rage at the patriarchy and a, an intense love affair in the ritual bath.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To me, it makes sense. I mean, if you consider lesbianism as the one of the ultimate forms of turning away from the patriarchy, That's right. refusing yeah. to be dominated by the patriarchy, yes, it is the perfect locale.
0: And then somehow I had this idea: Hava, the attendant at the ritual bath. I had this idea of her kind of awkward, kind of a Frankenstein figure, as somebody very big and awkward and innocent, also emotionally impulsive. She came to me, really. I don't know. It's just sort of wonderful. I thought, oh, it was something that that really uh, I felt like I was channeling, actually. Yeah. And I thought, oh, Hava's mother was the witch. And then I thought, wait a minute, did they have witches in the, Jew- in the shtetls, the Jewish villages? It's the exact same time as Fiddler on the Roof, an early 20th century Poland, small Jewish village, a shtetl. And so I thought, oh, did they have witches? And then I had this book about the shtetl, and I was reading it, and I said, and it comes on, somebody starts talking about the witch. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, I knew there were witches before I found out there were witches. Yeah. And then I had this idea for this young woman who has been brought up in a very intellectually privileged and enlightened way by her father, her mother died when she was born. And therefore, the marriage to a really tyrannical, oppressive man is completely intolerable to her, completely unacceptable to her. And she's a lesbian, ultimately. So it's an, it's an unbearable situation. And then Hava, the attendant, is a lesbian, and they fall in love. Then there's this enormous tension because it's a secret, and Rachel is being beaten by her husband, and her father has turned his back on her. Father, who brought her up to be so educated, has forsaken her, and so she gets angrier and angrier. And so the patriarchy is, is symbolized by the husband, who is really a violent abuser. The father, who is too weak to stand up for his daughter. And, uh,
1: and has a, gets advantages from right. the marriage.
0: He's, uh, he's married his beautiful daughter off to a, a violent rich man. Yes. <laughs> so uh, he gets a lot of privilege from it. And a nice uh, Sabbath dinner every Friday rather than the skinniest chicken in the soup. And then there's the beggar. Shlomo. Shlomo is Hava's charity. You know, she doesn't have very much, but she gives some of her food to Shlomo. And then Shlomo tries to blackmail them. Actually, there's another male, which is God. So there are four different manifestations of the patriarchy in the play. Rachel and Hava both respond violently to the oppressions that they experience. So it's very exciting. It's a very happy ending for the women. Yes, yes, (laughs) yes. That rarely
1: happens, you know. That's right, especially if the women commit violence.
0: Exactly. (laughs) Or anything. (laughs) Elma Louise had to drive off a cliff. God damn it, they could have driven to Mexico. I know, I know. Come on. Yeah. That was really rotten. Right. They don't have to drive off a cliff. They're going to escape and go to the big city and and pretend that they're sisters and live together. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Anyhow, it was very funny to me when we had auditions. We auditioned, I don't know, 12 actresses. And they all were so excited about the idea of a play where women were violent and there was a happy ending. Yes, yes. <laughs> the women weren't punished for their violent behavior.
1: Yeah. No, it it really feels like that. You just can hardly believe up to the last minute that they are actually going to walk out. And they do. (laughs) That's wonderful.
0: So it's been kind of an incredible experience in that I've had a feeling of channeling the characters. To me, that's the greatest feeling is that this person lived, these events actually happened, and now you are recording them. Right. Well, and you,
1: you said to me, this play is a play about women's rage against the patriarchy, you know, that they wouldn't have to be Jewish. But no. in fact, no, but you can write this play because you are Jewish. It is a Jewish woman's play. It's yeah, that's that true. story.
0: Yeah, I guess I wanted to write this play about a lesbian love story in a mikvah,
1: Yes, in this yes.
0: watery realm, yeah. and in fact, it's very interesting. I worried that the very the first scene is all the different little ritual steps because uh, Rachel is coming to the mikveh for the first time. You go to the mikveh for the first time before your wedding, and and Hava is instructing her. And I was worried that people would think the scene was too long and boring, but people want more, not yeah. less.
1: Yeah. <laughs> No, this is a play where the where is completely intoxicating and important and yeah. central, which is, which is so perfect because the mikvah is actually and symbolically also, like you say, the center, the crucial thing. It is a play about bringing back women's centrality.
0: That's right. I'm really excited about this and I feel... Yes, certainly I'm the one to write it. There isn't anybody else who's going to do
1: it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Right. It's that, it's that, if not... If not you, who? If not now, when?
0: (laughs) That's right. Exactly. And my director, Heather, she really is very much about if not now, when?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Well, Every playwright needs that director, that that aspect of director. (laughs) Yes, right. So I just want to say thank you, Terry. My crony, Terry Baum, for this interview. I learned new things about your process in writing plays and about Judaism and lesbian Jews. And I just think it's going to be incredible for so many people.
0: I hope so. Thank you, crony. This has been fun.
1: You've been listening to the Crackpot Crones podcast with Terry Baum and Carolyn Myers. <music>